Well, good morning. As we transition in this time of worship to learning through the Word of God, I want to start by talking about the story of a girl named Mary. Now, Mary was about 22, just walking home to her bus stop on a winter day, carrying some groceries, nothing out of the ordinary, until she slipped on the ice and fell face first onto the ground. Mary had been wearing glasses, and the glasses broke and shattered and, and cut into her eye. Shocked and in confusion, she got herself up and got onto her bus where most of the people turned away, ignored her, didn't want to meet, make eye contact, and the bus driver just kept going. And they just left her there, bleeding, on the verge of losing her eye. Until Mrs. O'Connor stepped in, convinced the bus driver to stop, and called 911 to get her the assistance she needed. And not only did she get her help, but she went with her to the hospital, sat with her through all the treatment, and once she knew that Mary was going to be okay, she left, not looking for any reward or thanks. And Mary didn't even know her, this woman's name until later she tried to find her and began searching to figure out who this woman who had saved her and kept her from going blind had been. And it was only at that moment that she learned that this woman had been an immigrant who had, been who had to leave the country. So not only was this woman, Mrs. O'Connor, in a place where she didn't already know the custom, she didn't know the healthcare system. She wasn't really welcome because in this country she wasn't, uh, immigrants were tended to be looked down upon and most people just wanted them to stay out of their country. She, she disregarded all of that to step up and make sure that Mary was okay. And, and the story of Mary and Mrs. O'Connor is a true story. And because of Mrs. O'Connor's selfless act to save Mary, despite all of the things that stacked against her, either language barriers, cultural differences, the potential that maybe Mary didn't want to be helped and could turn around and sue her for something, she, didn't, she ignored all of that to step up and make sure that Mary was taken, taken care of. And because of this, the BBC has labeled her the Good Samaritan. And as I prepared for this sermon and read the story of the compassionate woman who saved a young, woman's, a young girl's life, I began to think about the first story of the Good Samaritan, the one told by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Now, there are several organizations out there that like to use the word Samaritan in their title to portray a mission of compassion and helping others in need. There are hundreds of other stories like Mrs. O'Connor where people have been labeled Good Samaritans because of their acts of compassion and selflessness towards people in need. And as a result, the term Samaritan has become a badge of honor, something to live up to, something we want to be. However, in the story of the first Good Samaritan, this isn't the case. You see, in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, we see Jesus being confronted by a Jewish leader, someone who is well-educated in the law of Moses and knows what it means to be a good Jew. This man prides himself in knowing the Torah and living out all of the laws commanded in the law of Moses. In fact, this man is so sure of himself that he thinks he can trip up Jesus and prove that he is a false messiah. He asks Jesus a very important question to follow up the claim Jesus has been making, that the greatest commandment and the summation of all the Jewish laws is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus had been teaching that if you do this, you will naturally fulfill all of the other aspects of the law. Now, this man who comes to question Jesus knows this is the foundation of Jesus' teaching. And so he uses this to prove once and for all that Jesus is not the Son of God. 
He wants to unravel Jesus' teachings by making Jesus admit that there are some people that we simply cannot love if we want to fulfill the law of Moses. And even more so, he wants to validate himself that he and his fellow Jews are some sort of elite group because they are the people of God. Jews are supposed to be the heroes of God's story, and therefore outsiders are naturally villains, enemies. And it is in this environment that we are going to encounter Jesus' answer to this man. Except Jesus doesn't outright give him an answer. Instead, he lets him experience the answer through the telling of the story of four men, one who is left on the side of the road to die, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And this story is intentionally set up to convict and create an emotional response. However, I realize that we don't really understand that emotion because we are not faced with a Jewish-Samaritan dynamic in our own culture. Therefore, I'm going to retell the story from the point of view of the Jewish traveler. As you listen to it, try to put yourself into the story. What do you feel? What do you experience? What emotions come to the surface? Now, keep in mind I'm going to take some creative liberties in this, but the heart of the message is still there. One day, I was on my way to Jericho from Jerusalem to visit my sister. She had just had a baby, and there had been complications, so I was on my way to assist her as she recovered. Her husband was a fisherman, so they didn't have a lot of money or extra food. Therefore, I loaded up some baskets with clothes and food and some extra coin to take to them on my visit. Now, I know it was risky to go alone, especially carrying all that supplies. Those pathways were filled with people causing chaos and stealing anything they could. But all I could think about was my poor bedridden sister and my little nephew who was not getting the proper care he needed. So I decided the journey was worth the risk. I made sure to go during a time when it was pretty well-traveled so there'd be people around for my safety, and I set off. The first half of my journey was not very exciting. I passed a few religious leaders on their way to Jerusalem, and they had been discussing some problems they'd had with Samaritan leaders about who was really right. Who was really following God? Because, you see, Jews believed we had to worship in Jerusalem, while Samaritans believed we had to worship out Mount Gerizim. And they were debating whether the Samaritans were even worshiping Yahweh or if they were worshiping a lesser, false god because of where they chose to worship. I didn't stick around to hear the end of their conversation, but being raised a Jew, I knew that they, the Samaritans were half-Jews, Jews that had married and had children with other tribes because they had been exiled from the northern kingdom after they failed to worship God. And because of this, they were influenced by other tribes and their religions, and therefore they were wrong about who God was and how we were supposed to worship. Now, I'd never really met a Samaritan. Well, not that anyone would be surprised. If we ever did end up in the same location, Samaritans and Jews stayed as far away from each other as possible. I mean, I had been taught that there was nothing but evil that came from the Samaritans because they were taught things both religiously and politically that were against the laws handed down to us from Moses. Though, now that I think about it, they were probably taught the same thing about me. Now, once out of earshot of the religious leaders, I put the whole Jewish-Samaritan debate out of my mind and began to focus on exactly how I was going to help my sister and nephew return to health. I just started mentally preparing what I was going to make for dinner when I noticed that the path got very quiet and suddenly there was no other traffic around. 
All of my senses told me something was wrong and that I needed to get out of there, but there was nowhere for me to go, no one to help me, nothing I could do. So I kept putting one foot in front of the other, trying to figure out what the source was that was making my hair stand up on end. They came out of nowhere. Three? No. No, four? Honestly, I don't quite remember. It was all such a blur. But suddenly there were several rough men surrounding me, ripping the baskets out of my hands, throwing punches and hitting me, kicking me, and at one point I'm pretty sure I felt a rib crack. When I finally fell to the ground, so broken and bruised that I couldn't have done anything even if I wanted to, they gave me a few extra kicks for good measure and took off with the supplies I had brought for my sister. Everything was quiet again, except for a pounding in my head and something that sounded like liquid dripping on the hard ground, which I soon realized was blood dripping from my head wound. The world around me started spinning and everything started to go white. I was seconds away from passing out and no one was around to help me. Just before I gave into the sensation to let go and slip away from the pain and confusion, I heard footsteps on the path that brought me back to reality. I lifted my head as far off of the ground as I could and gave a hoarse, painful whisper, hoping that he would hear me and come to my aid. The footsteps grew closer and I let myself hope that I would actually make it out of the situation alive. I waited, but as I waited, I, felt this, I heard the footsteps quickly walk in the opposite direction of where I lay. I strained to see what was happening. Why weren't they helping me? As I watched him walk away, I realized I recognized him. He was one of the priests who worshipped and served at the temple in Jerusalem. Why didn't he stop to help? I lay there now experiencing two types of pain, the physical pain from my injuries and also the hurt of being left to die by someone who claimed to speak for God. I almost felt like God himself was abandoning me. And as I struggled to unjumble my thoughts and figure out what was going on, I heard another set of footsteps coming down the path. I tried again to call out, but it was even more difficult than before. My cracked rib was making it hard to get air into my lungs. Again, I felt hope as the footsteps neared. But like the first footsteps, these two hurried past. As this man retreated, I realized I knew him too. He had taught my brother in school. He was supposed to be an expert in the law of Moses. He taught young men what it meant to follow God, and if anyone should desire to help me as a fellow human and as a Jew, it should have been him. And yet he left me to die as well. It hit me in that moment that I was going to die on the side of the road. If the two most godly people in our community weren't going to stop and help, what chance did I have that anybody else would? As I lay there in pain, bleeding, going in and out of consciousness, I heard the hooves of an animal coming down the road. I almost didn't bother looking up, but I decided to give it one more chance. I raised my head and took in a breath to make one last desperate plea for help when suddenly my breath caught in my throat. The man on the donkey wasn't a priest or a Levite or even a Jew. It was a Samaritan. I had seen this very Samaritan outside of my town just a few months ago debating with the religious leaders. It had almost turned violent, so some of the people from my town had run him off. Instead of helping, this man would most certainly finish the job the thieves had started and kill me. I tried to be as quiet as I could so he would just pass me by and leave me alone. But my heart raced as I heard his animal stop and the sound of his feet hit the ground. All I could do was wait. Wait for him to do whatever it was that he was going to do before he killed me. At least the pain was going to go away. So I prayed for, that death would come quickly. And I waited 
and I waited. I could hear him moving around, digging in his saddlebags, but I didn't dare open my eyes to see what happened. Maybe he thought I was already dead and wasn't quite sure what to do with my body. And I waited some more, and I'm sure it was only a couple of minutes, but to me, it felt like hours. But I forced myself to stay quiet out of fear. Finally, I felt his hand on my head, and I knew this was it. But wait, what was that? A bandage? Was he bandaging my wounds? My head was still pounding, but I no longer felt blood running down my face. What was happening? What could possibly be his motive? He finished with my head and moved on to my arms and legs, wrapping whatever must have been bleeding and pouring liquid on it to clean the wounds. After a few minutes, my head stopped spinning, and I was able to think more clearly. And that's when I realized just how intense the pain from my injuries were. Had this been his motive? To make me suffer? To drag out my torture? Surely he didn't hate me that much. Was he really that evil? Then another thought crossed my mind. What if he really was trying to help me? Everything I had been taught growing up told me that there was no way that this was the case. He was the enemy. He was evil. He was sinful. There was no way he would go out of his way to help me, especially when our own religious leaders couldn't, or rather wouldn't, help. I was still pondering what his motives were when, I, when he lifted me, my bandaged body, up onto the back of his donkey. He began to walk again, slowly, leading his animal with me on it. It was after a few moments of this that the pain became so overwhelming that I finally passed out, and I don't really know what happened after that but I woke up in a comfortable bed with a man I didn't know tending the wound on my leg. And when I asked him what happened, he told me that the Samaritan had brought me there, paid for my room and board, paid for my medical care, and promised to come back and pay anything else that may come in as expenses. I still can't remember my mind around what happened to me. While my wounds have now healed and I'm back home, trying to make sense of everything that had happened, I can't stop thinking about the man who had let he should have left me on the side of the road, or even killed me. But he did what none of the Jewish men of God would do, showed compassion on me, and saved my life. And I don't know what motivated the other two men to pass me by, but on that day, the Samaritan was more a man of God than those two were. He was a man of compassion. He was truly my neighbor. Now again, I took a lot of liberties with that story, but the heart of the message stays the same. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, he answered with a story about four men. The one left to die on the side of the road, the priest who passed him by, the Levite who also ignored him and went on his way, and the one who, showed, who was supposed to be his enemy, who instead showed compassion on him and saved him. Jesus follows this up with a question of his own. Who would you say was a neighbor to this man? And the religious leader has no choice but to say the one who showed compassion. Jesus doesn't debate. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't even explain what this means for them. All he says is, go and do likewise. And that's it. Jesus and his disciples continue on their way, and we are left wondering what the religious leader's response was. And that right there is the beauty of this story. It doesn't just apply to the religious leader. It wasn't just for those listening to the conversation. It wasn't for people only living 2,000 years ago. Jesus leaves the ending with a cliffhanger. The leader knows what he's supposed to do, but does he do it? 
Does he stop trying to trip up Jesus and truly listen to what his message is? Or does he go back to his normal life, continuing to live as the religious leaders did, worrying so much about looking godly that they forget to be godly? And it is in this open-endedness that we are able to place ourselves in this story. As most of us know, Scripture was not written only for people 2,000 or more years ago, but it is living and active, the Word of God, and it still applies to us today. We are still called to follow the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we too must ask ourselves, who is our neighbor? Who are the Samaritans in our lives? We don't live in a culture where the people in the town next door next over are mortal enemies and even though you may not be fans of Legrand or their sports team I hope that you don't go out of your way to harm them or speak evil about them so how can we apply this to us in Baker City in the year 2020 in our present culture and circumstances in preparation for the sermon I asked several young people who they would identify as modern-day Samaritans who was God calling them to see as their neighbor and I'll be honest, I was surprised by who they came up with. I was expecting them to say something like the weird kid at school or, or even my siblings or, or someone that was bullying them. And all of these would have been true. These would have been examples of their neighbor. And yet, their answers were much more mature than that. They listed people groups like Muslim terrorists, Democrats, Republicans, specific people like Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, Kate Brown, Joe Biden, and even countries like China. I was surprised because at their age, I couldn't have cared less about politics or what was going on in the world. My worldview was so narrow that I could have answered that question only by what was impacting me individually and what was making me uncomfortable. However, I realized that where kids are today, what they are experiencing is so far beyond what I had to endure at their age. Politics were rarely discussed in my home as a teenager. I barely knew who was running for president, let alone what their policies and beliefs were. And I knew there was a war going on, but I never knew the specifics of the horrors of that war. And I knew there were other countries that didn't like America, but I was told that we were superior and stronger and that I had no reason to fear those other countries. I grew up in a world where loving my neighbor really did seem easy. Unfortunately, today, there is so much pain, hurt, destruction, and evil going on that kids are no longer able to stay sheltered from the horrors of this world. I barely can have a conversation with anyone that doesn't c contain politics or some new horrible event going on. My social media feed is filled with articles and posts that are all centered around horrific current events. And as a result, it has become a lot harder to love our neighbor. Why? Well, think back a minute ago when I read the list of Samaritans created by people who are too young to even vote. Did you have any response to any of those names? Have you had reason to fear any one of those people? Would you willingly go to China or the Middle East right now to be Christ to the leaders of those countries? Have you or someone you know said something hateful or unloving about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the specific leaders within those groups? In today's culture, it is very easy to hate. It is very easy to criticize. It is very easy to respond out of fear. And it is very easy as Christians to choose to distance ourselves from others because of our religious convictions. 
And because of this, it is very hard to see others as our neighbors. Now, I'm not interested in starting a political or social justice debate. These are just some examples that all of us have been faced with daily that I think we can all relate to in today's culture. But there are countless other people that we each individually may have a hard time treating as our neighbor. For me, I think of the boy who bullied me in high school and spread rumors about me because I wouldn't go on a date with him. I think of the coworkers over the years who had a different lifestyle than mine, going partying and drinking on the weekends, who criticized me for not joining them. I think of those I've encountered on my journey to become a pastor who told me I'd never be one because of my gender. And I'm sure if you thought about it, just for a minute, you could think of plenty of people in your own lives that you'd rather pass along the side of the road than stop and help. We often have the desire to be the priest and the Levite in these circumstances. While neither of them beat up the man or really did anything wrong or sinful by human standards, neither of them lived into who God had called them to be. Neither of them had shown compassion. Neither of them had been a neighbor to the man. And as a result, neither of them were remembered as the heroes of the story. People like Mrs. O'Connor from our first story are not known as the good Levite or the good priest. And why? Because they put their own comforts, desires, and religious convictions above the call to be a neighbor to anyone in need. Now at this point you may be thinking that if you saw one of these people you just thought about dying on the side of the road, that you would stop and call 911. And I believe for most of us that would be the case. From what I know about each of you, no one here is vengeful enough to wish a suffering and harmful death on anyone, even their enemies. And therefore, it may be tempting to dismiss the story and assume you are already being a neighbor to your enemies. But this story is so much more than simply not letting someone die on the side of the road. And to truly understand what we are called to be as neighbors, we need to look again to the Samaritan. By choosing to stop and help the Jewish man, he laid down four key things. His pride, his reputation, his safety, and his resources. In putting the man on his donkey and leading the animal, he lowered himself physically to the Jewish man. For a Samaritan serving a Jew, that would have been a huge hit to their pride. The main argument that the two was the main argument between the two groups was debate of who was superior, and this act would have seen as would have been seen as admission that the Jew was above the Samaritan. He could have drugged the Jew behind him or carried or rode on the donkey with him. But in his desire to get him help as quickly and fully as possible, he chose to lower himself rather than get caught up in his pride. Second, he had to fear his reputation from those who might criticize him from his own group. At best, he would have been, he, he would have been taunted for his choices, but he could have been shunned and humiliated. He could have lost friends, his family, his respect in the community, and his very identity. And yet he chose to ignore those possibilities to care for the hurting in front of him. Third, he gave up his own safety. Not only did he stop in an area that had already been proven to be dangerous for the Jew, but he also chose to put the Jew on his donkey and carry him into a Jewish community where many would have seen that as he was the one to harm the Jew. And yet he took the risk in order to fully care for the man until he was completely healed. And finally, he gave up his resources, his time, his donkey, and his money. We know from the story that this man was on his way to some business transaction. He would have been in a hurry as, time, as travel was time-consuming and difficult. And yet he stopped. He cared for the man. And he even came back to the inn on his way back to make sure he was, he was taken care of. 
He gave up his donkey, which was his only form of transportation, his only form of comfort. He now had to walk those treacherous paths and at a much slower pace. And he gave up his resource, paying for medical care, room, and board for an indefinite amount of time, especially in a city that didn't like you already, would have been incredibly expensive. And yet he didn't even question it or put a limit on how much he was willing to give. His only concern was that the man was taken care of. Therefore, we must understand that any situation that may threaten our pride, our reputation, our safety, or our resources and comfort is a time in which we are called to be a neighbor. One of the most painful things I've heard Christians say during this crazy year is that as Christians, we need to keep anyone who disagrees with our beliefs out. Now, we don't say this outright, right? We don't claim that we want to keep people out of the church or out of our community. But I've seen things like, Jim was in the Compassion Center asking for food, but I know he spent his money on alcohol, so I don't think we should help him. Or the family that moved in next door is Muslim, so I don't want to get to know them or share anything with them. There are countless examples, some that I myself have said or thought, where essentially I'm putting my pride and belief that my Christianity is superior to others to the point that I won't be Jesus to them. How can others learn about Jesus, get the help they need, or realize they are sinners in need of a loving Savior if we are so caught up in looking godly that we forget to be godly to others? The way that we can be a neighbor is to lay down our pride and go be a neighbor to those that are the hardest to love. Another way we need to be a neighbor is by laying down our reputation. Other conversations I've had with Christians go something like this. Bob said something really hateful about one of the presidential candidates, but I didn't want to speak up because I didn't want him to think I liked that presidential candidate. Or I don't want to bring my cousin to church because he's living with his male partner, and I don't want my church family to know I have a family member who's gay. Again, we are so worried about what others may think of us if we speak up about injustice or helping people who are making poor life choices that we struggle to be a neighbor to them for fear of what others may believe about us as a result. But how can others learn about Jesus, get the help they need, or realize they are sinners in need of a loving Savior if we are so caught up in looking godly that we forget to be godly to others? The way we can be a neighbor is to lay down our reputation and go be a neighbor to those in need who need Jesus the most. The third way to be a good neighbor is a little more challenging to discuss. I want to preface this, but I, that I'm not telling you all to just pack up and go to the Middle East and start spreading the news of Jesus. That wouldn't be reckless. What I'm saying about laying down your safety is something more about your relationship with you and God. When God calls you to do something that may threaten your safety, you need to be willing to do it anyway. It may be something small or big, but if you're scared to do it, but God tells you to, you need to do it. You need to be able to recognize when God is calling you to do something outside of your comfort zone and trust God in those moments. You must be willing and ready to go because how can people learn about Jesus, get the help they need, or realize they are sinners in need of a loving Savior if we're so caught up in our temporary safety that we allow them to remain in eternal danger of life separated with Christ. To be a good neighbor is to lay down our safety, listen to God's leading, and be a good neighbor to those who are the scariest to love. The last way we learn to be a good neighbor through the story of the Good Samaritan 
is to lay down our resources for the sake of others. This may seem like the easiest thing to do because it's really easy to give money to the church or the Compassion Center or a number of nonprofits that are out doing compassionate work. And while this is something you can and should do and these organizations are able to do amazing things with your resources, the Good Samaritan was active in the distribution of his. He wasn't faceless. He wasn't part of a faceless organization. He was present and able to see the results of his giving. And we can do this too in a number of ways. Compassionate Center, Compassion Center will definitely use your resources, but they can also use your presence. The church will definitely use your resources. But when you can share your experience from, about following Christ with kids and teens, they are able to connect so much more than what some money can do. Nonprofits can do amazing things with your resources. But by actively volunteering, you provide a resource that no amount of money can get. Personal relationships. Organizations, buildings, and programs are not called to be Jesus, to be neighbors to others. People are. The people in those organizations, in the church building, running the Compassion Center, running the nonprofits, those are the ones who get to be neighbors to others. We get to share Christ. We get to meet needs. And therefore, the most important resource you can give is not your time or your possessions. Or not your money or your possessions, but your time. No one began to follow Christ because organizations like Amor Ministry built them a house. But many have become active members in their faith community because their local church partnered with churches from around the world, including our own youth group, to build houses, meet needs, to share life with them and help them. And this should be encouraging to us because I know, especially right now with such economic instability, it's really hard to give money. Or you may not have resources to give, but we all have the same amount of time. We all can choose how we spend that time. And we can choose to be a neighbor with that. Because how can others learn about Jesus, get the help they need, or realize they are sinners in need of a loving Savior if we are so caught up in meeting our own needs and using our own time for our own benefit that we fail to meet the needs of the least among us. So what can we take away from this? We covered a lot of situations, ways to be, be a good neighbor and a bad one, and many of you may be feeling a little overwhelmed. So I want to sum up everything into this one challenge. See everything you do, every encounter you have, every person you see as a chance to be a good neighbor. When you're the, at the store, annoyed that the cashier is too slow, be a good neighbor. When you're on social media and want to post something that's unloving or argue with someone because you disagree, be a good neighbor. When you're asked to give someone directions or help someone, be a good neighbor. And when you walk out these doors today and go wherever you're going for lunch, be a good neighbor. When you encounter someone who believes differently than you, has political views different than yours, follows different moral convictions than you, worships different than you, or really anyone you immediately want to disagree with, whether you are right or wrong, be a good neighbor. Because how can others learn about Jesus, get the help they need, or realize they are sinners in need of a loving Savior if we are not neighbors to them, regardless of who they are? Now as we close, I want to read the words Jesus ended his story with. Go and do likewise. You're dismissed.